This episode of The Energy Pipeline is sponsored by Caterpillar Oil & Gas. Since the 1930s, Caterpillar has manufactured engines for drilling, production, well service, and gas compression. With more than 2,100 dealer locations worldwide, Caterpillar offers customers a dedicated support team to assist with their premier power solutions. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline Podcast with your host, Casey Yost. Tune in each week to learn more about industry issues, tools, and resources to streamline and modernize the future of the industry. Whether you work in oil and gas or bring a unique perspective, this podcast is your knowledge transfer hub. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Energy Pipeline podcast. Today, we're fortunate to have Jeff Weiss, past Associate Administrator for Pipeline Safety at the U.S. Department of Transportation, as our guest. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline podcast, Jeff. Hey there, Casey. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. So uh, before we start talking about today's topic, uh, would you take a few minutes to share your background with our listeners, please? Sure. Um, so I've, I've been uh, in the general oil and gas space for uh, maybe, I hate to admit this publicly, but pr- maybe about 40 years. Um, I started my career in what used to be known as the Minerals Management Service and did about 15 years for offshore oil and gas regulation, largely in the safety sphere. And then I went onshore to pipelines with the USDOT and spent the rest of my federal career with USDOT doing safety again with pipelines. And after that, left and went to be a senior VP with a company called TRC Companies, uh, serving oil and gas companies, pipeline companies, but all focused on oil and gas and energy. Good. Very good. Very good. So today's topic is 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 essentially safety in, in general speaking terms. And we were talking earlier, I, I remember as an ASCE member in college taking field trips to different massive civil engineering projects and works. Now, this was the early 70s, uh, prior to OSHA and and all getting getting strongly involved and i remember distinctly a field engineer looking at us at this massive project and saying that they calculated based on the cost of the project that they would lose 12 workers mm. that is 12 workers would die during the construction of this project but he was proud to say that they were 3 quarters of the way done with the project and they had only lost 4 you know, and, 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 you know, thank God we've gotten to the point now with the work that the, the federal government done and, and frankly, the en- energy industry has done to get to the point where zero is the number that you have, regardless of the size of the project. It doesn't matter whether we're talking 10 feet or 10,000 feet or a thousand miles of pipeline. Zero mm-hmm. incidents is the number that you want to have. So anyway, I just wanted to share with you my experiences from 50 years ago and how things were in the civil engineering world and, and kind of use that as a background to, to maybe you can talk a little bit about the, the, the shared goals that now government and industry have today compared to what it was in the early 70s. 
Yeah, sure. And, you know, and I share your horror in listening to anyone say that it's okay to lose four people on a job. I mean, I would have fainted and passed out and fallen on the ground, I think, at that point. But you don't have to be around that long and read international news before you see projects going on in other countries where they lose a lot more than that. So uh, I just I don't know how anybody accepts anything other than zero is the goal. We basically say everyone goes home safe, you know, whether it's somebody working on the job, whether it's a customer or whether it's the neighbor to the pipeline. But uh, we'll get to that in a bit and talk about how, and I'll talk a little bit about safety management systems with you. Um, I, I guess I'd, I'd wrap up that part of it by saying, I think the other shared goal that everybody has, and I think it's pretty reasonable and accepted now, is like, keep it in the pipe. You know, um, we, we can't take leaks, whether they be liquid, gas, or whatever anymore. There are a lot of reasons for that, and I'll touch on a couple of them as we go along. But, I mean, I think those are two pretty simple ones. And I have worked a long time with the industry. I have a lot of friends in the industry. You know, I have a lot of friends in the advocacy group. You know, I was sort of positioned in the middle, and my job was to negotiate. And, uh, you know, having a lot of people talking around the table, uh, talking to each other and, and sharing their views and seeing how, you know, kind of a solution can come together by working together to something, something we need to see more of in this country, right? Is people being willing to compromise with one another in the interest of moving forward. So, uh, yeah, I do have a lot of years in. Um, I've been blessed by being able to work on a lot of industry standards um, myself. Um, and learn so much in those things. I really I think they help me a lot. When we're talking about pipelines, we are talking about pipeline systems and the overall systems yeah. in the pipeline. Yeah, we're, we're talking not just the linear pipe, but all the facilities that go with it and uh, pumping stations, compressors, you name it. Um, and what, whatever type of pipeline, whether it's distribution pipeline, transmission pipeline, gathering pipeline. So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, sorry about that. I should have made that clear. I'm talking about the entire inventory of pipelines in the U.S., which, by the way, makes there's, perfect sense. There's, there's over, last time I counted <laughs> by looking at the reports, there are over 2.6 million miles of linear pipe in the U.S., um, that's Amazing. it's hard to believe until you see the underground. So it, like ever go to New York City when they expose the street, it'll blow your mind. There are pipelines crossing everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> make, absolutely, make me nervous. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so with this this idea of everyone goes home safely and and the need to keep it in the pipe, if you will, you know, there's got to be some tremendous lessons learned that you've you've gone over your 40 years experience that that you can share with us and and how we've gone from losing four people is okay to where we are today yeah you know i i think in the, and it feeds well into the final discussion about pipeline safety management systems is you know i think the the we need to understand first of all in this country in most countries, energy is critical and essential, 
right? Whether it's for our comfort in our homes, whether it's for mobility, whether it's for prosperity, if you stop at any point in the day and look around you, you're being supplied with energy in one form or another. A lot of the stuff that moves in, tr- in pipelines, by the way, like get natural gas, transmission lines, feed power stations, which themselves generate electricity, it goes out and fills up all the Teslas that are out there. So, And I'd like to remind people, their friends, they have Teslas. They go, you know, at least two-thirds of the energy in that Tesla came from oil and gas. So we need to be mindful of it. Um, so, you know, what's amazing, too, is I guess during that time, I, you know, these are things that they don't teach you. Security in this country, you know, our security is tied closely to energy. Um, during Katrina, when that happened in 2005, as I recall, um, the whole East Coast was within days of a mass outage of all motor fuels and and um I was thinking about the chaos that would ensue following that. Trucks couldn't take groceries to grocery stores. You couldn't go down, fill up your car, and get it out of town or do whatever. But national security was one of the ones that we really were worried about. I was in the command center for the federal response to Katrina. Again, lessons learned. Um, I also wanted to, to say to people that I have a lot of friends in the industry, as I said, you know, and they say, well, you know, we haven't had an accident in like five or eight years or something like that. And I said, that's that's good. You know, you should be proud, but you shouldn't get complacent. Um, The public, the Congress, the media, some of these other people that will talk about how they play into the regulatory sphere. They judge the industry. They're not judging your company, per se, unless you have a nasty accident. And the industry, I used to see every pipeline accident in America. Um, and sadly, you know, on my phone. Um, and it's amazing how many per day there are. So I think that over time that adds up and creates an impression. Uh, Not to, to just to take you on a sidebar there. Do you think the issue is complacency? I, I think people do. They, I've heard operators actually say, well, you know, we seem to be doing really well. You know, we haven't had any problems for X number of years. And I I would say, you know, then you should knock on wood. Um, Things are changing around you all the time. And if you're not adapting to that change, you become a dinosaur. Things happen, right? And uh, so you can't, what's the old saying? It's you, uh, past performance is no guarantee of future success. So, you got I like to have operators who are running scared, you know, sure. they're, just, they're no, asking what, what could happen here. You know, before every startup, for example, you want people to stop and say, what could happen here? You know, have we taken care of that? You know, is that good before we started up? We don't want anybody getting hurt in this thing. So, um, well, has has op analysis are, are really quite good for, for startup. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Anyway, I didn't mean to take you on a tangent, but thank you. No, no, not at all. And I guess the the point that I would add on to that to say, uh, I used to say the cost of failure is rising. Um, You know, there used to be accident and it would blow over. I was always appalled, by the way, in the offshore world um, where 
four guys could get killed in a crane accident on an offshore platform, and it didn't make the front page of the New Orleans Times picky in, right? <clears throat> but if I saw if somebody spilled 10 barrels of oil, which I don't like either, but if they did, it was covering every newspaper you could think of. So environmental degradation has really uh, played a big role in this stuff. Um, and the cost is growing. So whether it's to the company's reputation or whether it's, you know, through the media um, who go feed the Congress, of course, and Congress love nothing better than a soapbox to stand on. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, sometimes legitimately address their constituents' complaints. You know, if it happened in their district, they're going to want to do something about it. It can also affect them financially. So, I would just say the cost of failure is growing, um, and this has brought a lot of attention to pipelines, as you know. And I think, not for the right reasons, I'd be I would say that um, it's done because the advocates who are really opposed to the use of fossil fuels figure if you can stop it from going from point A to point B, then you can shut it down, right? And they're addressing. Fossil, use of fossil fuels, which none of us want to see climate change, none of us want to see the carbon, se uh, not sequestration, but carbon uh, being emitted into the atmosphere. But rather than attacking that problem, we're attacking something else. Um, and so uh, I would just say there's little room for error now, and it seems like it's getting smaller to me. Um, so the other thing I wanted to add in here is that uh, if you think about it, and I, I have lived my life, used to teach my kids all the time, is that when you make a mistake, it's important to own up to it, you know, and say, you know what, uh, I made a mistake. I apologize for that. I want to move forward. And you've learned something, right, when you own up to it. If you don't own up to your role in things, it's kind of hard to learn from them make changes to make sure it doesn't happen again. But the other thing to consider is that we know this in our daily lives, things are changing around us constantly, whether it's technology, whether it's the climate, it is, you know, we're getting more intense, severe storms. Things are happening. Ironically, I'm going to talk about uh, API's recommended practice 1173 pipeline safety management systems in a bit. But I, and I was on that committee. We published that document in 2015. We had, I don't know why, the accidental foresight to include preparation for pandemics. You know, you need to think about as a company things like pandemics. Well, damn, you know, if we didn't have one. And there was a lot of scrambling going on by companies to figure out how we're going to keep operational, you know, with our people, right? So, it's just, uh, these are all lessons learned. Um, and I would just say uh, the traditional approaches to solving uh, problems like this, pipeline accidents or whatever, were a regulatory fix. Um, so with your permission, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how regulations come into being these days and why, um, but I'll make yeah, it, it short. It, it, you, you, you touched on the idea that that an accident happens, then someone in that district complains to their 
congressman or senator or to whomever who then goes to the regulatory agency and says, tighten this up. We don't want this to happen again. And it seems like we can go back to the 60s when 192, 195 started coming out and all of that. It always seems to be the trend, an accident and then a complaint and then the the Congress telling the regulators to do something. So, so maybe you can get into that background on regulation sure. origins and and the that path that I'm so poorly describing. No, you did a great job. Uh, I, you know, I would say what you introduced, by the way, is not common knowledge. You know, the the federal pipeline safety regulations really didn't come. They were worked on in the '60s, right? But Right around 1970, they were coming into place. But, you know, they were dominantly uh, industry uh, standards, consensus standards. They were just incorporated. They were given very little time by Congress to get it done. A lot of the standards are very helpful, by the way. So um, and having sat on a number of the standards and saying, you know, how much knowledge gets put into those things is amazing. But they were largely based on the standards. And prior to that time, pipeline safety in America was run state by state. Uh, Eventually, the Congress said, hey, if it's an interstate pipeline, meaning crossing state boundaries, it's going to have to be regulated by the feds. Um, But we want you to let the states regulate that pipeline, which is just within a state, intrastate. Um, But you feds have to set the minimum standard nationwide you know nobody should have multiple standards to deal with so that's how it got started but you you also touched on what i call the vicious cycle um and it's i've seen it so many times that i've come to believe in it what we see is an accident immediate blame pressure whether it's brought by the media or whomever um, and nowadays, by the way, you know, the media, that's they sell digitally and they sell on clicks. Um, and so sensationalism, um, not all sensationalism, but sensationalism does get a click and they get paid by clicks. So they call it clickbait. Right. But advocacy groups and everybody spin up. Congress loves uh, to fix problems um, and they love the attention that comes with their role in providing solutions. So they create mandates that go into law, law by the U.S. Congress that tells the regulators you mentioned that said, hey, usually they say within one year, you'll have a final uh, regulation out that will do X, right? That's that's hilarious. And they know it's hilarious, but they don't feel good about saying, hey, nowadays to do a substantial regulation takes five plus years. Um, easy. When I first started, it there were hardly any comments that would come in when you put out a proposed regulation. But now it's floodgates. They have cost benefit requirements and everything. It'll take at least five years. The with, guy who used to have OSHA told me. With, with that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The guy with OSHA, go ahead. Dr. Michaels was the former head of OSHA. Um, and we, I knew him, you know, I dealt with him a lot. He's a good guy. Uh, and I was complaining to him one day and I go, man, I'm getting beaten up because I can't get these regulations done that the Congress said to get done. 
but here's why. And he goes, why are you complaining? I can't get them done in 10 years. You know, so uh, it's just people should know that there's a process underneath that. I'll go into a little bit in a second, but let me turn back to so, you. So, so, yeah. So, so with that, um, everyone's been talking about the mega rule that's, <laughs> that's recently come out. How long did that process take? Wasn't that five plus years to, to, plus. to go through or? Yeah, just Plus. getting just getting to a proposed rule was five years. I I literally quit working at DOT as that rule was being published as a proposed rule. Alan Maybury, who was my deputy at the time, is now in charge of pipelines, and he yes. signed the final rule only a couple of years ago. So uh, it you know it was damn near close to ten years in getting that one out. And the reason it was, uh, again, I, I'm leery of going into too much detail for chewing up your time and boring people, but it's, it's just amazing that it would take that long. But the process, that, just so people know, a congressional mandate comes along. An agency has to develop, first of all, a proposed rule, publish it, solicit comments from everyone, um, and then in the case of... Uh, FEMSA, Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration, which writes those regulations in DOT, um, they have an advisory committee member that are made up of five public, five industry, and five government people for gas, another one just like that for liquid. Those groups have to meet and basically say whether they deem it to be uh, cost-effective, practical, and beneficial, right? a cost-benefit analysis, and if they don't, they're going to recommend changes to that rule. You're going to make all those. Each time you go through the U.S. DOT, which has, by the way, bigger uh, agencies in FEMSA. They have FAA in there for aviation, right? They have motor carriers in there for trucks. Um, It's just hard to get their attention. There's only so many of them. Once they approve what you're doing, it goes to the Office of Management and Budget that works in the White House, and same thing there. I mean, they're taking requests from all these agencies. So there's only so many people to go around, and so a rule can sit anywhere for six months or a year, you know, before you hear back from these uh, people. So uh, eventually it comes out, you give people an effective date, but you also have to train federal and state inspectors on how they would do the inspection. The industry has to adjust to that rule. I guess I'll I'll stop, but I'll say that, you know, I really think this vicious cycle I was talking to is more than not, it's driven by a bad accident in the industry. Um, And somebody says, hey, I've got to fix that problem. And so you, FEMSA, write a rule to do this, but it will take five or 10 years. All that time, FEMSA is getting beaten up for not getting the rule out within a year or two, but it's it's totally impractical to suggest that they get it done in a year or two. Gotcha. So so we've we started at the big end of the funnel and we've worked our way down. We've talked about these this regulatory issues. So now we start getting into the current focus, if you will, the the approach to safety and energy reliability. And as you yeah. mentioned earlier, security um, and and 
APIRP 1173. So can you talk sure. a little bit about safety management systems in that regard? Right, I will happily. This is really sort of my passion. So this is the part I really like about, so you'll have to give me the time if I start going long on it. But I started this in the offshore world. There was RP75, which was an analogous document on systems management in the offshore oil and gas sector. And I was the only government person on about a 20 person committee. The rest of the people were from industry. We built RP7, the first edition of RP75 that was, how do you take a systems approach to, to your operations, right? Um, and it's worth knowing that it's not new for uh, any kind of an operation to do that. It's done in nuclear for sure. It's done surprisingly in things like chemical uh, processing and in medicine, it's done. There are systems and how you manage systems and how you etch knowledge as you learn. So at any rate, it was after uh, yet another accident, Marshall, Michigan, there was a large hazardous liquid oil spill, crude oil spill um, in um, a river up there. I flew it, by the way, um, with the Coast Guard, and it was 10 miles bank to bank on this river with a sheen. Um, and got a lot of attention, as you can imagine, and the National Transportation Safety Board, um, which are really accident investigators, right? They're very good accident investigators, but they also come up with lots of ideas. And uh, FAA, the aviation group in DOT, had been messing around with safety management systems for a while. NTSB came back and made a recommendation, which the regulator has to listen to. And it recommended to API that it build an SMS safety management system for pipelines. So again, pipelines including the whole system, not just the linear pipe. Uh, and it. so uh, industry asked me to be on that committee. I was joined by about 20 other people. It took us two years to build the document and we generated a document called, you can look it up, it's called API's Recommended Practice 1173. There's even a pipeline sms.org that API maintains that gives you kind of everything you want to know about uh, pipeline safety management systems. So when I decided, by the way, after reporting for 10, 10 years directly to the political appointees, both parties, uh, I decided that enough's enough. Um, <laughs> It's different working in a political environment than it is in an industry environment. So I quit and went and began doing some work on SMS, as well as managing a group of people in several offices on pipeline services. So uh, we've been evolving 1173 ever since. And right now, this it's up for it's, it's been out published since 2015. Uh, it's been confirmed once by reconfirmed, so it was able to get another two years. And now we're working on the second edition of RP 1173. But basically, well, I'll, the lesson I think, the first lesson I learned in DOT on safety management systems was from the FAA. And they said, the first thing you should do is keep it voluntary for at least 10 years because the regulator and the industry can work together in a no harm, no foul, 
kind of setting. They both learn, and then eventually the implementation, the oversight improve uh, thanks to that. So I maintained as long as I was there that it would be voluntary, and Alan Mayberry has maintained voluntary since. Um, but I, I'm telling you, we're one bad accident away from a congressional mandate. Uh, it almost happened after an uh, explosion up in Massachusetts around Boston, um, but there wasn't enough uh, support on the Hill for that member to drive it through. So I think the industry knows this, and it, it, they've got to offer up something to a member who needs to be satisfied, and eventually on a really bad accident, they're going to go, okay, if you want to make improvements, require RP 1173. So I'm here to urge all operators that they really should be taking this business like window to explore, adopt, you know, conform to that. Uh, and they'll find actually that it has a lot of benefits to it. And I believe you were a contractor too, weren't you, Casey? I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So what's happening now is that it, particularly in the construction industry, um, the uh, contractors are getting together and they're saying, hey, this needs to work for us as well. So let's do a contractor's version of it, which um, they have put out now. And that's also should be available on that pipelinesms.org site. So a lot of spreading. I think the last things I wanted to say to you about it, and I'll stop, so I promise. it's widely supported by anyone who knows it. You know, um, the all all the federal and state government supported every trade association or, uh, associated with pipelines supports it and promotes it, um, including contractor trade associations. Um, the NTSB, uh, one of the one of the happiest moments. I was used to getting criticized by NTSB as the regulator at the time. Uh, when we put out 1173, they came out and say it not only met their expectations, which is high praise from them. If, if they say you met what their expectation was, they said that document exceeded their recommend, um, their recommendations and their expectations because it introduced things as uh, different for all of us, I think, in the industry. Things about the role of culture, you know, and hitting that uh, target of zero, right? Having people committed to that, asking that question, hey, uh, what's what's wrong here? Or what, what, what could go wrong here? Have we really addressed that and thought it through? You know, it's like speaking up to one of your colleagues if you see them without their hard hat on somewhere. And we all know that's got to be pretty pro forma. Now, somebody goes, hey, time to put your hat on, right? Um, just not being afraid to speak up and point out things and make recommendations and for the management of the company not to shrink away from that. You know, in fact, in a lot of ways to encourage it. Um, yeah, we want you looking for risk because you're the ones in the field on the job. You're at risk. We want you to let us know about those things. But anyway, Casey, I'm sorry I went on for a long time on that, but it is my no, passion. No, no, it's all good. At the, at, the, at the end of the day, what you're saying is everyone needs to go home safely, including customers and neighbors. 
and you need to keep it in the pipe. That's, I mean, that's, that's essentially okay. what you've done. We started right. the big end of the funnel and we've come back down to everyone needs to take the time to read API RP 1173 because it is coming. You're, yeah. you're probably already implementing most of what's in there, but at some point in time, someone in Washington is going to say, thou shalt do this. So right. you might as well do this, not only because the regulators are going to come to you about it, because it's good business practice to that make sure point. that you, your contractors, and your, your, your family go home safe, yeah. right? Yeah, and you know, contractors in a lot of parts of the business can constitute up to 80% of the workforce. So you have to have the contractors involved in that as well. So, sure. yeah, yep. it's, uh, and I think we just should all stop to think about why would nuclear do this? Why would chemical do it? Why would medical do it if these weren't good ideas, right? The, the, right. They deserve your attention and consideration. So, Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, I just want to give you one more chance. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We good? No, no, I, 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 like I say, I think you, there's insistence on the regulator. You'll see this from politicals to punish when things go wrong. I personally am not a big fan of that. And I never was because I think people start hiding information you need to know to fix problems when there's punishment involved, right? Yeah. So it's something right. worth thinking about, even in our own life. As long as they up and admit their role and that take responsibility for that, I think we need to learn from it and not punish. Got it. Got it. Well, just again, API RP 1173. Yep. All right. So. Thanks, Jeff, for taking the time to visit with us today. Great topic. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I want to thank uh, everyone for tuning into this episode of the Energy Pipeline podcast sponsored by Caterpillar Oil and Gas. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for podcast topics, feel free to re email me at kc.yost at com. I also want to thank my producer, Anastasia Willison-Duff, and everyone at the Oil & Gas Global Network for making this podcast possible. Find out more about other OGGN podcasts at OGGN.com. This is Casey Yo saying goodbye for now. Have a great week and keep that energy flowing through the pipeline. Come back next week for another episode of The Energy Pipeline, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.